Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe we are still in the process of trying to figure out who's going to be our next president. This isn't the first time it's happened. I don't know if it'll be the last time either, but hopefully uh, we won't have another uh, debacle like the one from uh, 20 years ago. I clearly do remember uh, being a... um, a college student at the time I was a junior at uh, Bridgewater College uh, 20 years ago when uh, the Florida um, matter arose uh, with all those hanging chads and uh, ballots that were um, put into a question over whether or not they were valid in terms of how they, uh, people went about uh, voting. Uh, what a ride that was, uh, but hopefully uh, we won't have anything like that. Not, I'm not. I'm not talking just in Florida. I'm uh, talking where, in general, about where the other issues are going on. But uh, hopefully, the matter will get resolved uh, in a in a way that uh, will allow uh, government to still um, function like it normally should. Well, here we are again, uh, talking about finding ro- rivals, founding rivals, Madison versus Monroe, and we have a lot of. Um, important ground to uh, cover tonight, but then again, uh, the material that we discuss in each of the uh, podcasts has important um, information, but I think tonight's is more important because now we are at that um, stepping stone where we are actually taking that giant step and now are going to be meeting in Philadelphia to do something that has not been done before, and it's going to involve multiple people coming. Everybody might not be arriving at once, because we have to remember we don't have airplanes back then, we don't have uh, highways like we know today, but people are going to be arriving. Now, my first bonus question for tonight is going to be the following. Of course, many of y'all are wondering, where, where are we arriving to? Well, you're going to find that out here in a moment, but here we go with tonight's uh, lead-off bonus question. Despite the lack of strong turnout from the Annapolis Convention in Annapolis, Maryland, was there still a sign of hope for a new national government to be established? The answer is yes. Delegates like James Madison remain persistent with commitment to reforming the existing government under trying times. You know, James Madison's seen it all. He's seen how ignorant some uh, legislators have been, not just on the state level, but even under this uh, Confederation Congress. He has seen how many of them are more concerned about their own interests rather than the national interests as a whole. He sees how many of them just... Uh, don't want to uh, face reality and and realize that, hey, maybe we really are on the brink of collapse. Well, we've already uh, learned how Shays Rebellion in late 1786 was a dangerous um, sign of what could arise in the future if we did not have an effective national government. Uh, Think about these farmers, especially these uh, soldiers who had... uh, fought in the American Revolution, now are having their property confiscated. They don't have any kind of uh, hard currency like silver to be able to pay the debts off. Uh, The paper money is worthless. So here these men are 
and their families are being forced out of their homes without um, proper, um, not so much without proper consent, but without proper protocol to go by. And so what happens? Um, a huge band of farmers, about 4,000 strong, take up arms and lock and, and go about uh, closing down the court systems in Massachusetts. They go about preventing uh, foreclosures, home foreclosures from taking place. It basically takes the Massachusetts militia to put down this rebellion. But the bottom line is, is that this is an example right here of what, of what can happen when you don't have a solid national government in play. So James Madison's going to keep on pressing. He might as well keep on pressing until he's blue in the face, and he might as well keep on pressing if it means risking his own life to ensure that a future generation or future generations will be able to enjoy uh, the fruits of our blessings, meaning they'll be able to enjoy knowing that they can live under a government that is sound, um, functioning, that has uh, proper levels of um, proper level of channels. In other words, one branch isn't overpowering the other. That's what he's. That's what James Madison's trying to ensure that happens, because if not, then we run the risk of living in anarchy. We run the risk of living, if not anarchy, maybe monarchy, where power gets placed in, in one person. One person, um, he he or she may not rule like a king or a queen, but he, in this case, he being in 18th century times, might rule like a dictator, and basically make all the decisions for our country without the consent of the people. So when James Madison arrives into Philadelphia on May 3rd, 1787, he's probably one of the first delegates to arrive. Others will come shortly, but remember, not everybody arrives at the same time. But he will once again reside at the same boarding place that he did um, during the uh, Declaration of Independence, or not Declaration of Independence, uh, but during the time that uh, Congress convened in Philadelphia, uh, the makeshift uh, Congress. That, that would be at Elizabeth and Eliza Trist's boarding place. And yes, delegates were slow to arrive, which Madison knew that not all of them could arrive at once, but given that they were slow to arrive, it did cause Madison himself to have moments of doubt about the nation's future. So here once again... He's back at square one. He's saying to himself, my gosh, how long is it going to take people to wake up and realize that what they're living under is just no longer relevant? What is it going to take? And what happens if I don't get a full, we don't get a full quorum? And what is a quorum, folks? A quorum is basically a maximum or minimum number of people required uh, for a legislative body to actually conduct official business. So it's one thing for people to show up, but we've got to make sure that we have enough people present who can actually conduct business. So what breakthrough takes place on May 25th of 1787? The, co the convention at Philadelphia reaches a quorum enough delegates present on hand to start conducting what we call official business. 
Now, the first official business may not, not, not every form of business may take place on May 25th, but there's enough people there for uh, a roll call to take place, uh, for people to formally introduce themselves, and also to um, start inquiring about what is worth um, discussing right away as being that first official order of business. So two days later, on May 27th, the delegates present go about voting unanimously to choose the person, and not just the person, but the right person to chair the convention. It's none other than George Washington of Virginia, and how appropriate for a Virginian to be chairing the convention. The alternate choice was Benjamin Franklin, but... Benjamin Franklin um, was up there in age, and even he himself admitted that he would want to have someone younger being the chair of the convention. So he was kind enough to not only give his uh, words of wisdom on what he thought was best for the um, for the convening body, but he wanted someone with a lot more uh, youth and um, and more what you call military experience. And hey, George Washington would have been about 55 years old, but in that day and age, in 1787, that's considered to be old age at that time because most people usually don't make it to 50, and if they do, that's considered um, old age. Of course, 50 in today's time is still young, but in 1787, when George Washington's 55 years old, uh, that is considered uh, to be old age. But the uh, delegation uh, that was present um, voted uh, unanimously, that is without no opposition, to have George Washington chair the convention. Now, Washington's profile would be essential for success in general. Well, when you think about it, he's, um, he, he was the head commander of the Continental Army, he really is seen by many as first in the hearts of his country. I mean, after all, he is a member of that uh, Society of the Cincinnati, which was named in honor of Cincinnatus, the Roman um, general who um, had the same ideals and uh, leadership that Washington himself has. And Washington, being a Virginian, comes from the largest state, and as I've said so many times before, that Virginia has a lot to gain, but she also has a lot to lose. But if Washington's not selected as the head chairman for this uh, convention, it's kind of hard to say who would have been the next one in line that could have um, done as effective of a job as he will go about doing. And, you know, I think it's fair to say, too, that the rest of the delegates... In, at Philadelphia at this time, they have to be in awe of this guy. Many of them had never even met George Washington in person until now. They knew of him by name. And of course, how could you not know who George Washington was from the American Revolution, given that he was a commander of the Continental Army, but to meet him in person is an honor unto itself. But at the same time, you don't want to um, do anything that would um, upset George Washington. Uh, the, 
you know, yes, you might have your difference on something, but you certainly don't want to make a fool out of yourself around him because if you do, then you will not be um, in his uh, graces. In other words, he'll, he'll treat you like you want to be treated, but you don't want to uh, slight him in any way whatsoever. Of course, I've never met the dude before. The closest I could, I mean, of course, he was alive long before I was born, but uh, the closest I've ever gotten to meeting uh, a real-life George Washington is when my wife and I, wife and I go to Williamsburg. Uh, there is a gentleman who um, portrays George Washington, and he does a phenomenal job. Uh, he acts He acts the the part very well. Um, he's obviously dressed up in the, the same attire that Washington would have worn in 18th century time. But, uh, but the way he presents himself is out of this world amazing. But yes, um, those who were um, attending the convention were in awe of Washington's presence, given that some had never seen him up close prior to convening at Philadelphia, and George Washington himself would be in attendance every day for which proceedings took place. So in other words, he couldn't have just, he couldn't have just said one morning, well, I'm just going to take today off and have someone else take over my duties. Why would you want to take off? Now, if it's a Sunday, then yes, you would have been required to have had off because you are observing the Sabbath. But think about it. We don't have time for leisure days here, folks. We're trying to ensure that our nation's national security interests are um, met. That is, with establishing a better government than what's already in existence. Now, here's another bonus question to think about. Given George Washington was the head chairman of the convention, would he become directly involved and I found this to be very interesting in rereading uh, Chris DeRose's book, uh, Founding Rivals, Madison versus Monroe. I've, I've uh, found this to be very interesting as to why Washington did what he did in terms of um, involvement. George Washington, uh, the reason why he did not choose to become directly involved with the debates amongst the delegates he didn't want to get involved in the middle of other delegates' uh, political disagreements or disputes. And, and one of the reasons for that is because he didn't want to do anything that might jeopardize his image. He truly felt it was best to remain impartial to political view differences amongst the delegates present. You know, he was okay with um, the delegates having disagreements just as long as they knew how to disagree without being disagreeable. Um, I also believe Washington would have uh, not wanted to have seen um, delegates use um, inappropriate uh, words towards each other. I don't believe he would have, he would have tolerated delegates um, backstabbing one another. But if there was an issue where uh, delegates would have gotten out of control, I have no doubts that someone below him would have had enough um, authority to have um, gotten them uh, back in line with using a gavel or, or, or using something that would have um, brought everyone uh, back, to, a, back uh, to proper attention. Kind of like how when you see debates in Congress, 
I, I've seen them before in years past on C-SPAN where uh, uh, someone, where one of the senators, for example, uh, who's sitting at the uh, chair, uh, head chair, presiding over uh, other members' uh, debates, if it gets a little rowdy or out of uh, control, he'll just he or she will bang their gavel and say the Senate will come to order. So I'm sure Washington probably did something like that. It's very likely that he did. But another good reason for it is because George Washington did not want to burn any bridges amongst the rank and file of all delegates whom had voted for him to be a chairman. So when, when I say impartial, that I mean what I'm referring to is uh, not taking one particular side. In other words, I want to remain as neutral as possible, but I would like to see the delegates before me work out these differences without having to rely on me as a third party to resolve everything for them. I think it was a very uh, smart move on Washington's part. After all, so many people I so many people worship this guy. They know that he is I mean they they look up to him as almost like a godlike figure. I mean, they see George Washington as someone who just can't do anything wrong. So if they view him that way, and Washington knows that, Washington knows that he's not, Washington, I'm sure, deep down knows he's not 100% perfect, but he also knows that, hey, I need to set a good example for the delegates as well. If I favor, if I keep favoring sides all the time, then how are the delegates going to respect me as a chairman? So it's really a double-edged sword that works both ways. And in this case, it works for the better. On the other hand, I will tell you this, George Washington internally was in favor of a strong national government. And this is where we get into eventually down the road with the Federalists and Anti-Federalists. But George Washington would have been considered a Federalist, strong national government. Um, he would have been in favor of a federal government that actually... Um, had proper protocol in place, had um, it basically superseded uh, the states. James Madison, uh, as delegates came along and once a quorum was established, James Madison would be very impressed with all in attendance, especially as he noticed how delegates were taking the convention gatherings seriously, or the convention gathering, rather, I should say. So now James Monroe, I think it's fair to say that the ice is finally broken and that he's starting to see um, relations thaw. He's starting to see people coming together and realize that, hey, we really need to do something now because if we don't do anything now, there's no guarantee we'll get it right later on down the road. We have to get it right now uh, to ensure that our country will uh, go on a better direction compared to what it's already undergoing. How many, uh, here's a bonus question right here. How many delegates would attend the convention in 1787? I'll give you a number. It's between 50 and 60. The answer is 55. Did delegates from all 13 states attend? 
I would like to say yes, but I can tell you this. The yes part is that 12 out of the 13 states attended, or let alone sent delegates. There's only one state that didn't. That answer is Rhode Island. I know I probably mentioned from an earlier podcast about um, some of the reasons for why Rhode Island didn't attend. But Rhode Island um, is that uh, lone exception. They uh, apparently don't, they're they're still uh, wanting to live under that failed uh, system of government. They don't want to be told what to do by anyone else, but they also don't want to wake up and smell the coffee or the roses and realize that, hey, uh, if you think you have it grand now, um, wait till you um, see what's going to be in store. So in other words, Rhode Island's having a hard time coming to the realization that perhaps the grass might be a little bit greener for the right reasons if you uh, come to Philadelphia. Now what I do find interesting is about with these delegates that came uh, to Philadelphia, and I had read a book recently, I think I may have mentioned it the other night, but I'm going to mention it again, Signing Their Rights Away, The Fame and Misfortune of the Men Who Signed the U.S. Constitution. It's the same authors who did Signing Their Lives Away about the fame and misfortune of the men who had signed the Declaration of Independence. That is Denise Kiernan and Joseph Diagnes. It's very well worth reading, just like uh, the one about the Declaration of Independence was. But what I did find interesting was that 18 of the delegates who would go on to sign the Constitution were trained in the uh, field of law, whereas the rest of the delegates had professions ranging from merchants, plantation owners, to financiers. So when you think of plantation owners, um, I tend to think of you know Virginia, um, the Carolinas, and uh, Georgia, and even Maryland. Because uh, what people don't realize is that Maryland was a um, was well known for uh, producing tobacco. I didn't learn that until um, last year when I read uh, "Signing Their Lives Away" about the uh, the signers to the Declaration of Independence. Most notably, um, not to get off track, but a good example in Maryland was that um, they refer to it as the Rolling Hills of southern Southern and Central Maryland where tobacco uh, was known to be um, harvested and produced and then uh, shipped on, um, then put into hogshead barrels shipping out of uh, Baltimore, for example, onto its final destinations. So that's where the plantation owners would have uh, more than likely come from. Financiers would have been, you could have had financiers in any of the colonies or states, let alone uh, merchants as well, too. But nonetheless, it's a very good, uh, diverse uh, group of men who are uh, present in Philadelphia in 1787. Now, another good bonus question to think about is this one. Were any delegates whom had signed the Declaration of of Independence in attendance at the Constitutional Convention? The answer is yes. And how many? Well, What I can tell you is this, um, that a handful of men who had signed the Declaration of Independence, a good handful of them had already passed on before 1787. Some died even a year um, before the war, the Revolutionary War itself ended. Some died a couple of months before 
the British surrendered at Yorktown. And then you had one or two who passed away a year after um, the Declaration of Independence itself was officially signed. But the number, uh, the answer for this uh, first part of the question is um, six. There were six men who would make history twice by signing not only just the Declaration of Independence when they did in 1776, but by signing the U.S. Constitution in 1787. Who were those six men? Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, George Clymer of Pennsylvania, Robert Morris of Pennsylvania, James Wilson of Pennsylvania, and George Reed of Delaware. Now, what I find interesting here is that the vast majority of the men who signed the Constitution, who had already done so with the Declaration of Independence, really were from um, what in American Revolution times would have been from your middle colonies, but now it's fair to say they are from the mid-Atlantic states. With the lone exception of Roger Sherman, who was from uh, New England, or what we might refer to as the northern states. Now, I can tell you this, that um, men like um, John Hancock um, from Massachusetts, um, he was still alive in 1787, but he did not sign. I'm not sure why he didn't, but I do think it's fair to say that um, those uh, signers who were still alive in 1787, who had signed 11 years earlier, signed the Declaration of Independence, I feel that for many of them, they wanted to pass, pass the torch on to another generation. It's kind of like that famous saying or quote that President John F. Kennedy made at his inauguration back in 1961. I ask my fellow citizens this question. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. So in other words... JFK did mention that a torch had been passed to a new generation, and that's when he asks, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Now, uh, the men who had signed the Declaration of Independence were hoping now that new blood, or that a new wave of men would come in and, and, and um, grasp the op- or seize the opportunity given to them to um, lay a new foundation for our country. So the generation of 1776 laid, laid their building block foundation in declaring separation from England, that is to be free from uh, tyranny. Now this next generation has to come in along with the help of some wise uh, sages, you know, sages or wise people like Roger Sherman and Benjamin Franklin, to come together and now take another big step, and that is to replace the existing foundation of a fledgling government that's no longer relevant, or a fledgling system of government that's no longer relevant, and now make it into something that is more uniform, that um, has an even balance between national and state interests, but that national interests cannot be um, overridden 
by those of the states, which was what was going on with the failed Articles of Confederation. James Madison would not have any absence marks. In other words, he achieved a perfect attendance during this uh, convention. He sat in front of the chairman, a.k.a. George Washington. He did this in order to take notes, but yet at the same time he sat his back to the general. So in other words, George Washington was still able to get the full nine yards view that the rest of the delegation wanted to see out of him, but yet James Madison was granted the request by Washington and did so in a, um, you know, in the proper channel of communication, but he went about doing his business in the right way. Madison was quite an, ast an astute observer, and I think it's fair to say in today's world, if he were alive, he would almost make a great presidential advisor. He almost would make a great constitutional legal scholar, given that he was a lawyer himself, but that Madison, Madison just knew a lot of ins and outs about how government was supposed to work. And I think he would make a perfect, he would have made a terrific author on, um, go, on uh, governments, why governments succeed, why governments fail, and what governments can do to make themselves a better form of, um, what governments can do to make themselves better than what they already are now. What ideas did James Madison come up with for uh, proposal purposes? Well, for starters, he believed that the national government was the only um, body that could tax people directly and represent and from representation being proportional to population. Here's a bonus question right here. Which Virginia delegate would be the first to introduce multiple resolutions given that some of them were done by Madison himself? The answer is Mr. Edmund Randolph, or let alone, I should say, Governor Edmund Randolph, because, <laughs> believe it or not, here he is Governor of Virginia, but yet he is a delegate to this convention. Now, you talk a lot about, talk about some uh, major sacrifice right there, but... Um, but that was quite a um, noble sacrifice on his part, to say the least. Edmund Randolph would be the one to um, introduce these resolutions, given that Madison himself had already drafted. But I think it's fair to say that Madison does not want to be, he's not afraid to be in the spotlight, but he also knows that, that the spotlight cannot be it cannot revolve around him. In other words, he's got to um, let everyone else from the Virginia delegation have a chance to present the resolutions before the audience or the delegation as a whole, that is, the, 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 other, the delegates from the other um, 11 states as a whole, to, um, to let them know that, hey, this work, even though, okay, the work could have been done possibly by someone else, at least someone else is getting a chance to sell it to us. And uh, Edmund Randolph would formally go about introducing to everyone 
what would become known as the Virginia Plan. And the Virginia Plan itself would be the first major debate proposal that would begin on May 29th of 1787. And we should keep in mind that James Madison's uh, proposals have focused and will focus entirely on the structure and powers of government. Another bonus question is the following. What was one of the core components behind the Virginia Plan proposal? It had one of the core components revolved around representation in the national legislature. Representation in the national legislature under the Virginia Plan would be based on population size per each state. So bigger states like Virginia, Maryland, I mean, not Maryland, Massachusetts, pardon me, and Pennsylvania would have greater say over um, governmental affairs compared to, say, New Jersey, Delaware, and Maryland being smaller states. Now, under the failed Articles of Confederation, every state got an equal vote, basically one vote and one size fit all. Madison opposed the idea of allowing smaller states to have equal representation given just how largely populated Virginia was. Now I'm going to mention um, another part of this, um, of this subject content later on, but what I do know is that under the Articles of Confederation that if a person was living in Delaware, in Madison's eyes, that person had no more right to representation in national legislature versus someone living in Virginia. So basically, um, Virginia is a much bigger state than Delaware. In Madison's eyes, Virginia should have more representation because, because Virginia's representation is going to have need more representatives based on its overall um, population level of uh, people living in the state Whereas Delaware, yes, Delaware may have Delaware may not be the same size as Virginia, but Delaware's pro proportion for representation is not going to come anywhere near Virginia. And I'll give you a, a, a good contrast to that here shortly. The Virginia plan called for a national legislature, a body comprised of two chambers. Chamber one being the, a lower body, or what we now refer to as the House of Representatives, representatives would be elected directly by the people, whereas in Chamber 2, the upper body, known as the Senate, politicians would be elected by their state legislatures. And that was a practice in play, folks, up until 1913 when Congress passed the 17th Amendment, which, um, which ended... Um, the practice of state legislatures electing directly electing U.S. senators, it went instead to um, instead it changed uh, course by having uh, elections of U.S. senators by the people. So nowadays, when you go to vote, you not only vote for your House of Representative. Um, or House of Representative member, you also vote for your U.S. Senator as well. Maybe not in every election, if, but in each uh, congressional election, including a presidential election, one-third of the Senate body is up for um, election. So that's uh, about 33%. 
considering that in modern day times, folks, we have 100 senators, so it makes sense to have a third uh, up for re-election um, each uh, congressional um, election. Now, both legislative bodies would have power to bring bills or amendments to the floors of their respective chamber for debate. But here's a bonus question right here. What would the new Congress have under the Virginia plan that it didn't get under the Articles of Confederation? A veto power. You know, veto, when, when something gets vetoed, it's, um, it gets struck down. Um, a president can veto legislation... Congress can also override a presidential veto by a two-thirds majority. But when um, a president vetoes a bill, that means he is not going to sign it into law. So vetoing is a very powerful um, instrument, but what, what made it so essential during the Constitutional Convention was that it had never been exercised or had been allowed to use under for the national government's um, safety under the Articles of Confederation. Basically, the states under the Articles of Confederation were allowed to infringe upon national affairs at any time, but now that things are changing, the um, veto... Um, the veto proposition will now prevent states from infringing upon national affairs. So basically, we've done a complete 360 reversal here, but a good a good one for the right reasons because uh, you know states can't infringe upon national affairs. Sure, they can. I mean, they can disagree about it, but they but they cannot override what Congress has done. Of course. <laughs> Later on down the road, if any of you all have ever heard of a South Carolina legislator, he was a very prominent legislator. His name was John C. Calhoun. He would go on to be a vice president and a secretary of state. I mean, very well accomplished man. But if there was one thing he uh, engaged in quite a bit, and it really, um, I know I'm getting ahead of the game, but if for those of you who don't know about John Cal, John C. Calhoun, look him up, and you'll learn about a process called nullification. In other words, John C. Calhoun of South Carolina was a huge uh, states' rights advocate. He didn't believe that the state of South Carolina needed to abide by uh, federal laws, and of course, that did create a um, not only a constitutional crisis but a national crisis. But that's, that's for a whole nother uh, topic for a whole nother time. But if those of you out there listening tonight or wherever you are, if you have free time, check out John C. Calhoun and uh, nullification. Other proposals put forth by James Madison into the Virginia plan ranged from establishing a national judiciary to provisions for admitting new states into the Union. James Madison really has done a great job of uh, being one step ahead of the game. He sees things that others will eventually see, but Madison already has, Madison's already one step ahead by seeing right away, hey, this is what the Articles of Confederation lacked, but this is what the new government can do to make up for it. 
Another bonus question right here is the following. Would the House and Senate be viewed as checks and balances to one another? Yes. And we have this to thank, we have this to be, um, we have this individual to thank for doing so. He, he is one of the uh, six signers who um, had signed, who were carryover from the Declaration of Independence, who would sign the Constitution, uh, Roger Sherman of Connecticut. He is best remembered for composing um, the Great Compromise. So what is the Great Compromise? Well, it's the following. The House of Representatives would be based on, represent, would come down to representation based on population. Whereas in the Senate, there would be equal representation regardless of size. So what do you know? Each state gets two senators. So yes, Virginia might be the most populous state at the time, but um, Delaware being much smaller than Virginia will still have two senators. Their um, House of Representation might not be like Virginia's, but hey, they still get two senators. And there had been another plan uh, proposed by William Livingston of New Jersey, known as the New Jersey Plan, which basically um, said that you know each state, regardless of size, will get a vote. Well, that's great. But one of the reasons for that was because the smaller states didn't want to be left out. They didn't want to be um, pushed around by the big states all the time. But this is where Roger Sherman came into play and took um, William Livingston's uh, proposals from the New Jersey plan and James Madison's from the Virginia plan, combined them. Not, he, not only, it wasn't so much that he combined both, but others came along and agreed to this uh, compromise proposal, and that's how you get this uh, great compromise. And if it hadn't been for Roger Sherman's uh, propose, Roger Sherman's um, proposal or idea, let alone, I think the convention might have failed. This was this was a serious issue right here that really worried um, the small states. They didn't want to be left out, but they knew that they could that that something had to be done to ensure that uh, a proper uh, playing field was ensured. So thank you, Roger Sherman, for, um, for doing what you had done. And Roger Sherman uh, was one who firmly believed that a national government was essential to address uh, matters like defense, foreign treaties, and trade, um, just to name a few topics. Well, and what do we know? The U.S. Senate is the... Um, is given that it's the upper chamber of Congress, they are the ones, that body is the one that uh, ratifies and approves treaties. States can't do that stuff, but that's what they were doing under the Articles of Confederation. At the time, here's what I'm going to get to that I mentioned earlier about Virginia and um, Delaware as an example of um, differences in um, population size but how James Madison had opposed the fact that Delaware was getting an equal say to Virginia when Virginia had much more um, territory than Delaware. So at the time that the Constitutional Convention was taking place, Virginia had nearly 14, 
times the population size of Delaware. The, Virginia po the, the population of Virginia, including what we now know as Kentucky and its slave population, all together was 821,287 people. That is by far, folks, the biggest of the 13 states. But we take a look at Delaware and their population with slaves stood at, at a mere 59,094 people. So yes, Virginia is going to have to have more um, representation in the House based on population. But she'll still get two senators, and Delaware will too. But for Delaware to say, hey, we should have the same number of represent representatives in the House like Virginia, that just can't be done. As a matter of fact, there are only three counties in Delaware, and there are well over 50 counties in Virginia today. So <laughs> Delaware only has uh, three electoral votes. Virginia has 13. See where I'm coming from, folks? James Madison never believed, for one instance, that large states like Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts would ever pose a threat to the smaller states despite their economic, religious, and cultural differences. And think about it, folks. This is what makes our 13, the 13 states so unique. They each have their own cultural differences. Yes, they may have political differences, religious differences, but if we were able to band together in declaring separation from England 11 years earlier, shouldn't we still be able to band together despite Rhode Island's ignorance and not joining? Shouldn't we be able to band together to um, form a better government to ensure our nation's uh, long-term safety? Absolutely. And as uh, Denise Kiernan and Joseph Diagnes uh, mentioned at the introduction of signing their rights away, they said that uh, not all the signers could walk, not one signer alone could walk away with all the marbles. In other words, all the signers present had to compromise. They had to give up something else in order to get something else that they were desperately wanting. I think a lot of our politicians today could um, could uh, use um, that kind of uh, wisdom, given just how polarized and partisan Washington is. I should point out too that um, that in uh, signing their rights away, that a lot of other signers who uh, were new to the national scene contributed big and small. I can tell you this much, um, Nathaniel Gorham of Massachusetts, he and Rufus King were the only two from Massachusetts who signed um, the Constitution from the uh, Bay State. But Nathaniel Gorham, uh, we have him to thank because he was the one who uh, proposed that uh, U.S. Senators be elected to serve uh, six-year terms. There were some who felt that maybe Senators should serve eight and ten year terms, but it was Nathaniel Gorham who proposed a six year term. It's easy for us to think that, well, you know, people like Franklin and Madison or just people in general just randomly said, oh, um, senators should just serve six year terms and that's it. No, uh, we actually have Nathaniel Gorham to thank. He, um, he just felt, he truly felt that a six year term 
would um, was uh, suitable and and that it would coincide with a presidential election, as well as two mid what we now refer to as midterm elections. And I think that's a perfect balance. Now, who was the oldest delegate at the Constitutional Convention? That was Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania. He was at the age of 81. And Benjamin Franklin, he dies in 1790 at age 84, but he lived long enough to see George Washington become the first president. Benjamin Franklin has seen it all. and As a matter of fact, those who were present probably knew that this would be his last major um, political uh, contribution to our nation. But he really, um, he truly was a sage for his time. In other words, a sage being a wise man for his time. And who is the youngest delegate? His name is Jonathan Dayton of New Jersey at age 26. Not to get too uh, far off, not to get too off track, but um, I found Jonathan Dayton to probably be, I don't know if I'd say the most interesting of the uh, delegates that I read from signing their rights away. There were a fair number of men who turned out to be uh, real crooks. But Jonathan Dayton, in my opinion, was very crooked for his time. I will tell you this, too, that uh, Dayton, Ohio, was named after him. Jonathan Dayton, after the, um, after the American Revolution, but most notably after the Constitution was signed, encouraged um, fellow New Jerseyans to go westward into present-day Ohio. And a fair number of them um, did just that, and they settled in what we now know as Dayton, Ohio, which was named after him. Uh, Dayton, New Jersey is also named after Jonathan Dayton as well. But um, Jonathan Dayton got, got into a lot of uh, mischief for uh, shady, political, um, shady political dealings, but most notably land dealings. Uh, Jonathan Dayton um, stole $18,000 from Congress. He repaid it back, but his image was never the same. And to make matters worse, um, he and um, Aaron Burr, if any of you all know who Aaron Burr was, uh, he was Thomas Jefferson's vice president, but Aaron Burr also uh, shot Alexander Hamilton in, the, in a famous duel of 1804 in uh, Weehawken, New Jersey. Um, Jonathan Dayton um, lent um, Aaron Burr's money, and apparently Aaron Burr went to... Um, this was before Burr became vice president to Jefferson, but Burr went before Congress and um, gave Congress the paper trail of where he was getting the money from, being none other than none other than from uh, Jonathan Dayton. Well, uh, Jonathan Dayton was um, was severely punished for his uh, land speculation crimes, but uh, <laughs> to make matters worse, when he died in 1824. He was buried at a cemetery in New Jersey, but in but come 1860, the church uh, members of the church decided to uh, relocate their found their foundation or their structure, so they um, built it over Jonathan Dayton's grave. 
So the bottom line is, is that to this day, no one knows where he's buried, but they do know that where the church stands, it was buried under his, underneath, Jonathan Dayton's grave is buried underneath the church itself. So basically the guy never existed and it, it can be attributed to the fact that he was so crooked as a politician that, um, that, he, that he became largely forgotten. So there you have it, folks. Uh, yes, while a lot of our signers did a noble thing by signing the Constitution, Jonathan Dayton was an example of someone who, um, who didn't make the best uh, decisions as a uh, politician, and how ironic we see that so often in today's time where politicians say that they're on the side of the people, but yet they end up uh, <laughs> taking... Um, what do you call it? They they get themselves involved in shady practices, where um, where they end up um, doing where they end up doing stuff that ruins their images. But anyways, uh, back to our uh, primary focal point here. Uh, what did Benjamin Franklin propose that in his eyes must be done each day before a new session began? He proposed the idea of having a chaplain be appointed to conduct daily prayer services, bringing everyone together. I think that's smart because, you know, people have disagreements. But at the same time, they have to find a way to resolve their disagreements peacefully. But in order to um, avoid any further stress or tension, I think it would be a great idea to have a chaplain come in to lead a prayer, not just for people to pray, but to realize that, hey, we're in this together and that no matter how difficult the stakes might be, at the end of the day, do what's necessary to come together as one because you want to be united and not divided. Here's a bonus question right here. Besides George Washington, James Madison, and Edmund Randolph representing Virginia, what other Virginia delegates attended? They were George Mason, George Wythe, John Blair, and, J and James McClurg. Now, where's James Monroe all this time? I'm sure many of y'all are wondering. So what is going on in his life during the time that the Constitutional Convention has begun? Well, he remained very active in the private practice of law. He and his wife had recently become parents for the first time, but despite all the success he was having with his law practice, he felt very alienated from public service. This leads me to my next question here. Did James Monroe feel slighted? Did he feel slighted by not being selected as a delegate to the convention? Yes. James Monroe was someone who tended to take things very uh, personally, regardless of how the matter itself was addressed. James Monroe wasn't, I think for James Monroe, he, um, he had sacrificed so much during the American Revolution, and he had sacrificed so much in Philadelphia during his three-year stint in Congress. He wanted to keep his legacy alive. He wanted to be able to continue to prove to the outsiders that, hey, I've still got what it takes to contribute on the national scene. And he will, but 
sometimes, as the saying goes, um, not everybody can be catered right away or not everyone can be selected. And yes, when you get left out, it does leave a bit of a sting, but it's how you choose to um, cope with the... um, cope with the shortcomings in the long run. And that's going to be a real uh, tough hurdle for James Monroe. But what I do think is important to mention is what were the re- what reasons could James Monroe have been for why James Monroe might have been left out? Well, let's look at some of these other uh, Virginians and look at their records compared to James Monroe's. Let's start with George Mason. He was a member of the House of Burgesses. He was also the leading author to Virginia's Constitution and its Declaration of Rights, which was a precursor to the Declaration of Independence. You know, we do have a college in Northern Virginia in Fairfax County named George Mason University, named after this fella. Then we go to George Wythe, who was the nation's most decorated legal scholar. You know, remember folks, George Wythe, he was, he taught, he taught Thomas Jefferson. He also taught uh, John Marshall, who would go on to become the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. He also taught uh, James Monroe. He would also go on to teach a fellow uh, Virginian who hailed from Ashland named Henry Clay. But George Wythe, uh, besides being our nation's most decorated legal scholar, he is also a, a signer to the Declaration of Independence. He is a member of the Continental Congress. He is also a speaker to the Virginia House of Delegates. He also serves on the Court of Appeals. We, then we take John Blair, whose family is very prominent. Um, one of his relative distant um, a descendant, his name was James Blair, and there was a high school uh, named uh, James Blair High School in Williamsburg for a number of years. As a matter of fact, um, a good friend of mine, uh, his parents uh, grew up in Williamsburg, and both of his parents attended James Blair. But I remember my uh, friend's uh, father telling me once that it got uh, renamed uh, Lafayette High School back in the 1970s. Of course, that would have been named for Marquis de Lafayette. So, J- uh, so John Blair is one of the um, highest uh, senior uh, judges in Virginia. He is also a former Burgess and a member to the Council of State. He is also um, a draft, he is a drafter of Virginia's Constitution and Declaration of Rights. So in other words, John Blair is on the same boat as George Mason And then you got Dr. James McClurg, who happened to be a college classmate of Thomas Jefferson's at William and Mary. He was the most premier physician in Virginia in his day. He served on the governor's council of state, and he was also a very dear friend of Edmund Randolph's, or let alone, I should say, Governor Edmund Randolph, whom he had a very close working relationship, whereas James Monroe didn't. Now, as I've said before, James Monroe had a very um, distinguished service in the Continental Army during his um, 
from during the time he served from 1776 to 1779. He, yes, he also did serve briefly on the Council of State to um, Thomas Jefferson. Now, while all of that, and yes, he served in the Virginia House of Delegates, while all of that is great, including his uh, stint in 